0: we're cutting our second album now, our second album in advance, you know, which, because we've got a lot of good material, we want to get it down. Well, why don't and we tell him we're at the record plant in Hollywood. Yeah, that's where we are. We're at the record plant in Hollywood. You heard him yourself. <laughs> and I heard the, the the name of this album is, uh, A Kick, well, wait, don't, don't tell me. Okay, all right. <laughs> a Kick in the Pants. Okay. Uh, you blew it. Uh, <laughs> you blew all right, Robin. A kick in the head is worth eight in the pants. What's more? A kick in the head is worth eight in the pants. What does that mean, Morris? I don't know. (laughs) If Uh, you want to know... A kick in the head is worth eight in the pants means... A kick in the head is worth eight in the pants. It depends on how... You can have eight in the pants and a kick in the head, but I think it... Barry, take over. That does does everything, (laughs) yes. Well, a kick in the pants. Would you rather have a kick in the pants or a, a kick in the head? It's like a bird in the bush. Eight kicks in, no, a kick yeah, in the, kick yeah, in the pants right. worth in the is worth eight in the head. <laughs> a bush in the bird is worth. Right? That's right, yeah. All right. It doesn't have anything to do with rates of exchange or anything. I take right? it you're going to edit this bit out, right? Go
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Words the BGs podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants, the Bee Gees album from 1973 that, well... Never was. Recorded at the tail end of 1972, pretty much at the same time as Life in a Tin Can, A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants is probably the most prolific and well-known of the unreleased Bee Gees albums. Oh, by far,
2: this is, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think back now, and I first heard this probably... Around about the same time, funny enough, as Kids No Good, so probably two uh, two thousand three, four, something like that. And I was really impressed with it on my first
1: listen. It does help that, unlike a lot of other bootlegs or unreleased uh, albums, it sounds incredible in terms oh, wow. of the sound yes, quality. It
2: there was a bootleg, um, I think, on the Ladybird series, which I would never heard, which I assume was was of the quality of uh, Morris's Alona. But this is, this is, to me, is on, on par with Kids No Good, as far as quality goes.
1: And to have heard those two albums together, they are kind of both similar. Yeah. If you liked Kids No Good, you would probably like A Kick in the Head, because it's similar kinds yeah. of music. I did
2: read somewhere on the internet where somebody stated they thought Barry's voice dragged, and it was playing at a slightly slower speed. I, have, I must admit, I never noticed it. And it doesn't say whether there was relating to the, the, the first bootleg, or the latest edition. I've listened to it a few times since reading that comment. And I've heard it, and it it, it
1: appears fine for me. Because the, the sound quality of this is so good, I can only imagine that it was taken from, you know, the original, the the master tape. And if it was taped off that at a different speed, maybe that's why yeah. his voice may drag. But yeah. no, I can't tell the difference. It sounds good to me.
2: But it's still one one of life's mysteries, isn't it? How this it was done so quickly after the previous album. Yeah. It's like they jumped from one producer and then within a month was virtually working
1: again with with another producer. Arrangements for this album are by Jimmy Haskell. So we've moved on from Johnny Pate, who did Life in a Tin Can. And even though they were done simultaneously, you're right, they've gone from one to the next. So does that mean they wasn't particularly happy with the previous producer? Or they could only get him in for a certain certain,
2: period of time? uh, Yeah, it could be. Or oh, that probably that's why there's eight songs then. I don't know whether they, there was allotted certain studio time.
1: Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Because
2: I assume all these songs were written roughly around about the same time.
1: Well, yeah, even though they have different arrangements on "Kicking The Head to Life in a Tin Can, they are very much of the same style and cut from the same cloth. So, yes. I, but I'd not thought of that before, why there's different arrangers. Maybe they thought going forwards that every album they'd like to pick a different... Yeah, because obviously you've got to the
2: previous album, this album and the next one. So within three albums, you've got three different people all trying to pick up on what they think brings the best out of the Bee Gees. Yeah. And
1: do you think A Kick in the Head does? Personally, I think Jimmy works better with them than the previous one. He manages to find a better balance of the eclecticism of early Bee Gees with the more wistful and nostalgic tunes, but also... He gives it, the songs a little bit more of an edge. There's a bit more of an electric sound, like Wouldn't I Be Someone with the electric guitar, which I felt, and I, and I discussed this with um, Life in a Tin Can, where I hoped that we would have seen maybe some synthesizer. Yeah. And we have that here on A Kick in the Head, as we'll, we'll get into. So yeah, I, I agree with you.
2: There was on the 4th of December 1972, which was only two weeks after the Tin Can Master, and on side one, it starts with Elisa... Then we've got Wouldn't I Be Someone, A Lonely Violin, Losers and Lovers, Home Again Rivers. Then you switch on side two and you start off with Harry's Gate, Rocky LA, Castles in the Air, Where Is Your Sister and It Doesn't Matter Much to Me. That was all done in December and then in January the 8th and the 12th they returned back to the UK and recorded another four tracks. So when you get the bootlegs
1: it tends to be them 14 tracks that are grouped together which doesn't work no. those four songs don't really belong and I think the fact that they were recorded slightly later recorded in the UK they do stand out and they are of their own thing they've got their own merits but yes. you, I agree with you that they it works best as a 10 song set
2: yeah don't quite know where the other four songs would have gone but obviously they had no intention to
1: use it for anything else so Hence, the same as these 10 songs. So when you got the Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set in the early 90s, that included King & Country, Elisa, Wouldn't I Be Someone. Did you know when you listened to them that these were B-sides that were relating to this unreleased no. album? I hadn't heard King & Country, never heard that before.
2: I'd heard It Doesn't Matter Much To Me, but no, I hadn't. It's difficult because King & Country, I was not, well, I'll explain a bit later on that one. Okay. But that that doesn't form part of these, these 10 tracks listing, does it?
1: Looking at the personnel and recording information for this album, it was recorded at the record plant, the same location as Life in a Tin Can. However, this time we've got Jimmy Haskell as the arranger. Now, Jimmy, he would go on to work with Barry and Morris again on later solo projects. He worked with Barry on Now Voyager. And then he worked with Morris on various soundtrack works. As we discussed with Joseph Brennan on the Breed Apart soundtrack, that was with Jimmy Haskell.
2: Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm familiar with his work because I know he he worked with Simon and Garfunkel on Bridge Over Troubled Water and he worked on one of my favourite albums, which is Graham Goldman's Animal Olympics. Yep. Yeah. And I think his work on that is, is brilliant. But we all pulled through and won the
0: echoes We made it we've made it to the top Now
3: that we've made it we ain't
2: never There's a couple of tracks I think we did play one actually didn't we um for a few episodes back Well there's, there's a couple of tracks where where he plays I think is it We've made it to the top the final track fantastic production on that one and there's another song as well called Away From It All which which both summarize the album up for me
0: Space with another point of view, alone together with you
1: listening to Animal Olympics that was released 1980 probably recorded 79 but can you hear elements of that in kicking yes, okay. head yeah
2: slight elements i wouldn't say a lot but I suppose he work, he's got to work with, with the songs that he's been given, hasn't he, and the arrangements. And Animal Olympics was the was soundtrack to a movie. So I suppose they can go OTT, can't they, when it's for a movie? Whereas this, I was probably more
0: restricted.
2: I can see the similarity between the work he's done with the Bee Gees and with Grahams in the way that he likes to build a song up. I mean, if you look and listen to Elisa, the way that gradually builds up, then you've got We Made It To The Top. That sort of really builds up and builds up and builds up. And even the work he did on Bridge Over Troubled Water, again, that builds up and builds up. I mean, he's got a good way of, of you know, the song
1: really working to a crescendo at the end. And Jimmy Haskell, he just knows how to work with ballads from Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is an album that contains quite a few. But then equally, you're getting songs like Baby Driver, which I think you can hear remnants of in Kicking the Head with songs like Losers and Lovers. Yeah. But then with a song like Graham Goldman's Made It to the Top, as you said, when you get to the finality of that song and you've got the whole instrument is just brought up. Yeah. And, and you're getting instruments that are drawing back to Graham's melody line, you can h- really start to hear that again when you get to songs like It Doesn't Matter Much To Me. Yeah, probably
2: slightly different is where he builds up with Elisa and things like then he drops it back down again.
1: Yeah. Whereas with
2: Graham's, it, it finishes on a high. I suppose if you finish high, it, it must be quite difficult to go into the next track. Whereas if you downplay it, then it leads you then into,
1: quite smoothly into the, what you're going to put on next. But I think the main thing is that Haskell is such a versatile arranger and that versatility is what you need if you're going to work with the Bee Gees. Oh yeah. It's the material you're given, isn't it? And as you said, if if you're able to go from those highs to those lows, from Barry's higher register voice to Morris's lower timbre and still fit in Robin's vocals and, and make it as smooth and as well produced as I think a kick in the head is, then you're really onto something. And that's why I think it's such a shame that this album hasn't seen the light of day. I wonder whether he, he he lowered it at the
2: end of that song to lead into Wouldn't I Be Someone, whether that was already planned.
1: Yeah, because I, I think it's strange that Elisa, we'll talk about this more, but I think it's strange that Elisa opens the album Yeah, and not Wouldn't I Be Someone yeah. or another song. So yeah, it, it could have all been planned and songs segueing into other songs is something that we saw on Tin Can. We see it a lot on A Kick In The Head and we see it on the next album. So I think it's just something that was in their mind a lot at the time for the Bee Gees that they wanted to have these quasi medleys on their albums. Yeah, I suppose after Two may Makers being a lot of individual songs mm. they they tried to make these songs more one piece. But overall I think Haskell is definitely it, it was really good of them to, to be put re- with It's a good replacement
2: for Bill Shepherd anyway.
1: Yeah. And it's just a shame nobody's really heard it. I, I wonder how they got in contact
2: with him. It probably be via the studio or recommendation.
1: Yeah, if, if Haskell was out at the record plant or was out in Hollywood, LA, yeah. could have just been in the area, right, right place, well, he right could have time. Recording the
2: studio, th- they was recording Tin Can, couldn't they?
1: Well, yeah, there were so many other prolific albums mm. going on at that studio yeah. that he could have been. I've not looked into it. He could have been working with another artist, maybe in the studio next door. But the collaboration must have been so good, despite Kick in the Head not being released, for him to then work again on Now Voyager and on Morris's A Breed Apart soundtrack. You know, there must have been something there that the Bee Gees and Haskell both thought, we work really well together, we should revisit this collaboration again. Interesting, we get
2: to know Voyager then, as as to, because it's (laughs) very different material to what he was working with on this
1: one, isn't it? A bit longer verses, I think. (laughs) Yeah, you go from Baby Driver with Simon and Garfunkel to I Am Your Driver. Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. It just seems a bit unfortunate that Jimmy's work with the Bee Gees, so he's done this album, which was not released, now Voyager, which is quite overlooked, Morris's soundtrack work is difficult to find, and then Animal Olympics hasn't had a proper commercial release no. since 1980. So it's, these works that he's doing have, have been pretty much lost since release.
2: Yes, yeah, so if you, if you're a collector of his stuff, it's, uh, it's it's a difficult one to get hold of, isn't
1: it? The other personnel who are involved with this album isn't detailed or known for sure. But we can assume that Jim Keltner is on drums and Alan Kendall also, again, on lead guitar. What, and the rest are just the three brothers then? Well, I would assume so. Or it could be session musicians that are brought in coming in and out of the studio, contributing. As it was
2: required, isn't it? I mean, again, we're only talking, I think nearly all these tracks were recorded. I mean, as I say, again, I think like the previous one, there's no actual dates, is there? But they assume it's probably around around about November. In Andrew Sanderville's book... It says on November the 9th in Record Plant Series in LA, uh, Haskell employs a 20-piece group for three hours from 8pm to 11pm to augment the songs Wouldn't I Be Someone, Elisa, Rocky LA. And then 10 days later, they they resume again. They cover Where Is Your Sister, Lonely Violin, Castle in the Air, Harry's Gate, Home Again, and there's one song titled on the on the union sheet, is Nah, 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 Nah. I reckon that is... Nah, no, that's part, it's Harry's Gate. Harry's Gate, Rocky LA. So, and that's literally the only bit of info we've got on these
1: tracks. Well, with regards to the track listing, this was known by December 4th. There was, I think there was a tape reel or there was... Yes. Th- yeah, that's what I mentioned. So I would imagine that with Tin Can being released in the US first in January... A kick in the head we would have expected it around june july of 73 well the speed the Bee Gees
2: work yeah i mean normally you would you would think probably the end of 73 but if they wanted to record this so quickly after, after the previous album it, it seems to me that they and listening to that clip of an interview earlier on it seems they were keen to to go they, they were on tour into the u.s in may june wasn't they or something and so that would tie in then with the release of this album so you got you got you got some promotion to go with it, but
1: obviously nothing materializes. And instead, in the summer of '73, instead of a the head is worth eight in the pants, we have Best of Bee Gees Volume Two. And I wonder whether that was always intended to be released then, or if it was quickly put out as a replacement for this. I I personally think it's a replacement. I think, as you
2: pointed, Ed, it's got it's got a slightly different track listing because there was Best of Bee Gees Two, as we mentioned before, which tended to cover. Some of the solo stuff. Whereas this one...
1: Do you think this one was aimed for the US market? I think so. Because looking at the track listing... It gathers up quite a few songs... That might have been missed by American audiences beforehand.
2: Well looking at it Chris... I've found two versions of this. You've got a UK version... And the US version. Now the track listing for the US... Is Wouldn't I Be Someone... I-O-I-O, My World, "Say by the Bell... Don't Forget to Remember Me... And The Sun Will Shine... Run To Me, Man For All Seasons, that was side one. So they, they put eight tracks looking on side one. Yeah. So it's when they perceive different
1: markets requiring different songs. And, and it's quite an unusual mix because it, goes, it still goes back all the way to horizontal with And The Sun Will Shine. It's nowhere near as strong as Best of Bee Gees Volume 1, but it is a nice way to, to gather up these songs. But it's a shame that they instead of And The Sun Will Shine, they could have slipped on.
2: Well, they could have put a, a track from, from this, from a kit, couldn't they, as, as, a, as a a new track. So the US obviously got the, wouldn't I be someone, but why on the UK version they didn't put um, any of these
1: 10, 12 tracks, whatever on there, I've no idea. There's a review of Best of Bee Gees Volume 2 in the June 9th, 1973 issue of Record Mirror. The reviewer says, Tim Rice writes appreciative sleeve notes here for the Brothers Gibb. He points out that people queue up to record Bee Gees songs, but that the boys usually get there first, or they'd lose hits to the likes of Andy Williams, Nina Simone, Elvis Presley, and so on. So, not not reviewing what's on the album, but understanding that this is a collection of songs that the, I suppose the Bee Gees put them out in a compilation to prove that this is their music, yeah, regardless of the amount of covers that have been released. Well, I suppose the last chart action they had was run to me in the UK. Mm which was
2: July 72. So they're thinking, oh, well, it's a year, year past. We'll try and push this. And unfortunately, I don't think it it resulted in high chart positions, did it?
1: Looking at the charts, it only charted in one territory, and that was in the USA. It got to number 98. It didn't chart in the UK. So they were completely out of favour in the UK. And it didn't chart in Germany.
2: But if they don't tour, you don't have hit single. It's a difficult one but usually greatest hits albums bring the artists back into the charts
1: well most tellingly there's nothing from life in it in can and i know that nothing from there was a big chart topper but even still i think to be going back to songs from horizontal and idea i mean it's not called the hits of the Bee Gees; it's called the best of the
2: Bee Gees, isn't it
1: yeah but to be volume two i would have hoped that it would have just focused on everything that was released post volume one yeah but it doesn't so with all that in mind, should we start looking through the album? Yeah. And we begin with track one, Elisa.
0: All that I need is just a piece of paper. Say a few lines, make up my mind, so she can read it later when I... The things I must write Gotta
2: get it on a bit Goodbye This is a strange one for me. I can't honestly remember when I first heard it. I go through my singles and I have got it as a single. But I've got a feeling I must have seen that at a record fair. And I think the first time I heard Elisa was on the Towers of the Brother Gibb. Then I must have gone to a record fair and seen this as a single. And I thought, oh, i buy it. Because I don't... Rec- Not hearing it in the charts, there's no reason why I would, I would have brought the single. I really like this. I prefer this to the A-side. I agree.
1: I think that with with Elisa, the BGS have refined and distilled the perfect piano ballad in just short of 3 minutes. Well I think the vocals are stunning actually and the way they the way they sort of all melt together or blend together. Well it does something that very few other BG songs do. With the first few verses each of the brothers takes a go on each of the verse and we get we get a solo verse from Morris his actual last lead vocal before living Ice. There was there was nothing was there on the previous album. So I think I mentioned about trying to hear where you can hear him. He's much more prevalent on a kick in the head. But I really like what they've done here, that I feel like that that just seems to be such a, a perfect way of getting all three brothers involved, and clearly distinguishing the three of them, that I'm surprised that they never use that technique more often. Yeah. This is where we first hear Jimmy's... Well, I just think it's brilliant the way he's done this one. He's really managed to perfectly mic the piano. Yeah. It's quite a warm-sounding piano on this track, but it it lends itself so well to the... The song's themes of nostalgia and loss. And that seems to be a sort of an overrunning theme throughout this entire album. Yeah. We say this many times, but
2: the lead off track has been of late a single, hasn't it? Yeah. So this one
1: is a single, but it's the B-side. I don't quite know how I feel about it opening the No, I don't. I don't think it's the right one. There are other bootlegs of A Kick In The Head, which also include the four extra tracks from January '73. And on there, Elisa, I think, is towards the end of Side 2. And that doesn't really work either. So I don't know where you'd place a song like this. First one of Side 2? Yeah, actually. Yeah, I think so. But I just get the impression that Robert Stigwood's there in his office. He wants to hear this new Bee Gees album. He's already not been impressed by the success or lack of success of Wouldn't I Be Someone. He puts on the album and this is the first song he's met with. And he's probably thinking, oh, here we go. More of the same. Yeah, well, it is, isn't it? You know, it doesn't matter how good it is, it's still... What we, what we come to expect. And looking at the the credits for this song, it's BRM. Every song on this album is BRM. And I think that is the first time since doing the podcast that we've had an, an entire album of BRM.
2: Does that lead us to believe then that, that, that all these songs were recorded in the studio on the spot? Yeah, or adapted in the studio. Well, that probably ties in because on Joseph's website, he's got a quote in, or, or he's got a part which says, That when they interviewed Jimmy Haskell, he recalls being given instrumental tracks with mostly scat singing or no singing. The Bee Gees were therefore following the same procedure they'd used in England. They fitted the orchestra snugly into the recording by adding vocals and other dubs afterwards.
1: However, looking at the lyrics of Elisa and what I think is a a breakup and it seems to be somebody going away, immediately makes me think that this is predominantly a Robin lyric.
2: It's got a Robin melody as well, because I think on the previous album, it it was virtually Barry's baby, wasn't it? And so it's it's quite nice now where I I think I can hear a melody or it, it seems what I assume comes from Robin.
1: In the Ultimate Biography, Elisa is described as a slow ballad typical of several songs on the album, referring to a kick in the head, similar in mood to My Life Has Been a Song, but with a better lyric that avoids needless repeats. Now, I know that you were a big fan of My Life Has Been a Song.
2: I'm always a melody person as opposed to lyrics. I've got no problem with with, with what that reviewer says. I still, even though I like both, I prefer My Life Has Been a Song. And We say about the B-side, but oddly enough, this wasn't a B-side when it was released in Germany. They put the unreleased track, King and Country. It seems a lot of things get unreleased in Germany. As in the previous episode, we talked about the German singers that were were given the unreleased tracks. And
1: here we have King and Country. In some ways, Elisa does work really well as the first song on an album, because with the arrangement of it, it slowly builds up from starting off with a piano melody then we go into the vocals and then as the song reaches a certain point we then get the drums kick in and so it's kind of a nice way of layering up the song and drawing the listener in idea with let there be love that had a similar did the similar and that was robin as well wasn't it yes which is what kind of made me think although brm it did feel more like robin With Elisa, it, it kind of it says everything that it needs to say in three minutes and it does it so well and so concisely. Whereas with Wouldn't I Be Someone, I think has a more commercial sound, but it just overstates its welcome and plods along a bit too much. On that then, Chris, what are, what
2: are you going with score-wise on this? I've given it an eight. Yeah, I'll go with an eight as well. The
1: next track we come across is... The A-side, Wouldn't I Be Someone.
0: To something new But I must have been asleep But then I woke up Working out why I was still with you All the things I wish I could And wouldn't I be someone, a someone? And I would be respected. In the prime of my life, I'll do everything right, I'll begin.
1: So I think that this is a powerful ballad which has the makings of a really good single, and I really love those last two minutes of instrumentation. But at five minutes and 40 seconds, it does outstay its welcome. Well, I think they could have done like the previous album. They could have started off with Wouldn't I Be
2: Something. And that instrumentation you say at the end of there could have led into Elisa. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea. Yeah, so you, you could you could swap them round and then you've got a nice flow then from Elisa. But then obviously you, you come then to the next track after that, which might be a little bit clashing with each other. But I, I like this song. But I do find it a strange choice for a single. Hmm. Especially after the failure of Saw A New Morning, the reception that one got. I don't see why, where, and especially when the Bee Gees are on a new label, why they would want to go with something like this. Because, as, we, as we'll discuss later, there, there are one or two crackers which I think would make far better choice of singles. And it would show the Bee Gees in a different light as well. Who was picking the singles? I mean, I don't know whether... The Brothers were, or whether it was Robert. This is going back to Jumbo being released as a single.
1: Yeah, I don't think this is as much of a mistake as Jumbo. It would surprise me if it was Robert, because I think he would have better sensibilities to know that this wouldn't be successful, and I don't think he would be that naive to, to put this out. I would think that The Brothers would have suggested it, but I just don't know who would have, who would have released it in the, in the same way that... Do you think was something to do with being on the American version of, of The Best Of? Possibly, but I, I get the impression that they released it on the American version of Best of Volume Two because they wanted to give the song another go. The plus is on this one; you get you get to hear an electric guitar solo, which you, which you
2: very rarely hear. Yeah. So Jimmy's obviously bringing in instrumentation that we don't always get used to, like the previous album, where we were hearing harmonica and stuff.
1: It's nice to have those instruments that were, that have been absent for so long.
2: Just to bring it back to a band again.
1: Yeah. And Joseph Brennan rates this song really highly. He describes it as being reminiscent of Odessa, but with electric guitar.
2: Oh, wow. It's always open to interpretation, isn't it? I like it. It's a good song. Same with the previous one. They're both really good songs. But I just feel that we're seeing repetition of,
1: of previous. Now, you said in our discussion of Life in a Tin Can that there was the running theme, a concept of Life in a Tin Can that also fed into the opening side of A Kick in the Head.
2: I did find on the internet, on the Steve Hoffman forum, there was a post by The Lazenby and he has a theory about kicking kick in the head. Has it ever occurred to anyone that a kick in the head directly carries on the story from the previous album if you listen to the album in its intended order? It definitely seems to carry on a story of the love lost in Method to, to My Madness and the protagonist of the first album trying to regain his life. Also, the whole concept makes a lot more sense when you realise Robin is playing the female role. Listen to the opening lines of Home Again Rivers. You took it in your stride to run away and hide. Oddly enough, though, the story seems to end at Home Again Rivers. Side to a kick seems to be totally unrelated. The first five songs just serve as a coda to
1: life in a tin can. Okay, so with Wouldn't I Be Someone... It was the opening lyric, maybe there's a reason why we broke up, which could be the protagonist from Elisa, who's feeling regretful for ending that relationship. But I don't quite see where the character of Elisa and this relationship fits into Tin Can. Yeah, and there's also got side one also seems to end on a
2: cliffhanger with a female character, played by Robin, going off in search of her love, who has started his trek home after being absolved of his crimes in the previous albums, Come Home, Johnny Bridey. We get a four-song break from the story, but it doesn't matter much to me, it's her knocking on the door and the two of them being reunited.
1: Okay,
2: I definitely don't get any of that, to be honest with you. (laughs) As you said, you're you're a melody person. I'm a melody person, and I think think with with things like that, that's just gone over my head.
0: Midnight stars shining on my shoes
1: Now, there's a really beautiful lyric on Wouldn't I Be Someone in Robin's verse when he says, Midnight stars are shining on my shoeshine. And I think there's so much imagery that's in that line. Then the notion he says of, The world is going to fall in love with me. I think that's so appropriate for a band who, in a few years, You know, they're going to release songs like Jive Talking and the world is going to fall in love with them. Little did they know. Yeah.
2: Now, have you seen any reviews for this single at all?
1: Well, it's not a review, but I found a quotation from Robin from the Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set talking about this song. And he says, This is truly one of those songs that would be sacrilege to describe. For to do so would be to take away from that special relationship that has been created between the track and the listener. So I won't say anything
2: i found a couple of reviews, there's one in Record World and Wouldn't I Be Someone was one of it's four page number one single reviews and it's got a brand new tune from the Brothers Gibb, performed on their last tour is also included on the Best of the Bee Gees Volume 2 and for good reason. This gorgeous item is destined for top 10 and add to their gold stock. Billboard placed Wouldn't I Be Someone as one of it's three pop picks, predicting a top 20 peak The other two, which it got right, was Delta Dawn by Helen Reddy and Get Down by Gilbert O'Sullivan. Fairly bristling with melodic and lyric hooks, this is the most commercial Bee Gees entry in months. Its characteristically flowing, distinctive style song covers gut-level dreams of a loser hoping to find himself through love. Cashbox was more reserved. The follow-up to Saw A New Morning continues in the same warm and sincere B.G. style that has produced hit after hit for this super talented family of stars. It become virtually impossible to keep this group off the charts, so this will just continue their incredible string of classic recordings. But unfortunately, in Billboard, it became their first single not to make the Hot 100, where it peaked at 115 on the Bubbling Under chart on the 14th of July, its third of four weeks on that list. Cashbox didn't chart the song until August the 4th, where it spent weeks on the Looking Ahead chart and peaked at the equivalent of 122. But going back to our uh, other chart, we've got, again, it it was another number one in Hong Kong, Australia 52, the best one in Europe, it got to number 17 in Italy, 59 in the Netherlands. It tickled the charts some places and, and, and completely lost others. I've also found a review in Record Mirror which is dated 30th of June 73 and it says regarding would not be someone straight down to business on this one. This is the Breathy Bee Gees vocal trademark and backing of utmost simplicity and gradually the lungs expand, string players come in from behind the pillars and the volume increases definitely if not defiantly. Meaningful Instrumental Touches Come In, Robin Has A Go, It's Softly, Sentimental, Vibrato-ish Pop, and For My Money, Ruddy Good, Definite
1: Chart Cert. Which it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) A bit of a wordy one, that one, isn't it? I agree with that review, but like all of these reviews that we've found, they all seem really positive until the single actually gets released and it doesn't perform. Yeah. Looking at the page where it's
3: reviewed,
2: you've also got Slade's Squeeze Me Please Me, David Bowie, Life on Mars, Elton John, Saturday Night, All Rights for Fighting. Each one of them actually did predict a chart cert. And you, you could hear when you hear them, you'd know they're definitely chart certs. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put this one down, even though we're biased. I wouldn't have gone this as a chart cert. As we mentioned on the previous podcast, the Bee Gees toured Japan in 73. And this was one of the tracks they did manage to play live. And I think from this, this whole session, wasn't it? Yeah. This album, this is the only one that appeared live. And what do you think of the version? I'd say that the live version is as good as the studio version. And I think I like Barry's vocal. It just brings a little bit extra to it. I mean, if I, was in co- if I went to see them
1: hypothetically, I'd be very happy if they played this. Yeah. And him singing in the breathy style for the opening verse makes it so much more impactful when he then changes to his harder edged voice yeah. for the chorus. And that's what I'd like to see him do a bit more of, the harder edge yeah. stuff. Whether he does that a bit more live than the studio's. Yeah, it's a very slick sounding record. Like a lot of MOR music, it has a guitar solo which is so melodic that you can, it's almost, you can almost sing along to it yeah. in as much as you can with the lyrics. Right, I think on that then, I'm going to go with, ooh, probably seven. Yeah, me too, seven. This then brings us to track three, A Lonely Violin, and this starts what is, in my opinion, an excellent five-song run on the album.
0: Oh, what it is to be lonely Deep in the green grass of the valley of the One time long ago I tried so hard to reach you A song I tried to teach you But you were never there Deep in the sleep I'm under there
2: is the sound of a lovely Would you be happy buying
1: the original album and having three ballads virtually? That's the first line of my notes. This is a beautiful ballad and maybe Barry's best vocal on the album, but to be three tracks in and to have a third ballad, again, it's understandable why Stig would put a stop to this.
2: Yeah, because I know you always praise the Bee Gees on the first three tracks.
1: Again, that's why I was unsure about Elisa being the opening track. They could, yeah. If they, they'd have swapped that, maybe open the album with Wouldn't I Be Someone, put something else in track two, and then go into Lonely Violin as track three. Yeah. Would have worked better.
0: Play me the of
2: Stunning arrangement and vocals. I like the way the piano and the violin goes with the lyrics of Lonely Violin. And especially when the, the violin, it it almost sounds like it's crying, the way it's played.
1: It's one of those other instances where the instrumentation complements the lyrics so well and transitions really nicely again into the next song, Losers and Lovers, in the way that that violin flows from one song to the next.
2: You said this is probably one of Barry's best vocals. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think it, uh, And that's why I think this, this song really deserves a wider audience to hear it. I did read a quote somewhere that Elvis Presley was interviewed and he said he loved Barry's voice and he wished he could sing that smoothly and he especially liked words. It was always part of his life set. So I'm wondering, again, we always say this, don't we? I wonder if Barry ever wrote, wrote an album for him, had he lived. But I've never heard the Bee Gees go down the Elvis Presley route. I mean, they do the Beatles and they do, they've done Everly Brothers... Because Elvis was actually quite influenced by country music and
1: church music and that sort of thing, wasn't he? Yeah, interesting. There could have been an album in the 80s of, yeah, in the same way that, because Barry was able to do that, he was able to not resuscitate, but put some of these artists who maybe hadn't been in the mainstream for a few well, years. like Dionne Warwick yeah. and, and Kenny Rogers.
3: Yeah. Oh,
0: what it is to be lonely. Deep in the green grass of the valley of
1: the Now, I've put here in my notes, I wrote this quite a few weeks ago, and I I couldn't remember that I'd written this, but I I thought that this song might have been better placed as a coda to the album, like Her Majesty at the End of Abbey Road. I'm not sure now whether I agree with that, but I just thought that, because it's, it's a pretty little tune, And maybe it could have just been a a little thing right at the end of side two. I think you're you're thinking of probably the violin at the end
2: and it it sort of fades out and stuff.
1: And then that did get me thinking that we've spoken quite a lot with this album and Life in a Tin Can about one song transitioning into the next. I think they should have just gone the whole Abbey Road and and dedicated an entire side to a suite. Yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it?
0: Oh, what it is to me
2: There was also a version, Chris, by Percy Sledge I've only given this a couple of listens And it just seems way too slow for me It's like you've gone from 45 RPM to 33 First of all, I thought Barry had gone in slow motion But um, it seems a little bit more piano-led than the Bee Gees version. where they just tried it slightly different, but obviously you've still got the weeping sound and the violin. Me personally, it doesn't seem to suit that vocalist. He, he does a better job on it and a Bee Gees song in a couple of albums' time.
1: It, it's difficult because I think any cover pales in comparison to the Bee Gees original version, yeah. so it's difficult to ever do one of their songs justice, in my ear. And
2: I just think his vocal is quite deep. I think it needs a softer, a softer voice, because you've got the violin and everything in the background.
0: i
1: read a few different opinions online, researching A Kick in the Head, that a lonely violin is a bit too maudlin and it tries too hard to tug on the heartstrings. Do you agree with that? No, I don't think so. I mean,
2: you could say maudlin, but it it's a far better song than King and Country, which seems to be a similar type of song. this one this one is is
1: is nice and condensed. no, I, I think it fits well. I kind of get what they're saying about trying too hard. you know, I think having the violin there is maybe a little bit on the nose if you it's that thing if you're going to be sad, what's the saddest instrument you could have a violin?
2: I think it was just put there just to evoke the, a lonely violin, a one violin. Whether what they're trying to say, a lonely violin in BG's world, does that mean they're talking about
1: a lonely person? I think so. I think it's a metaphor for yeah. a, a lonely, yeah, as you said, a, a lonely soul, a lonely person.
2: So it's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? I mean, I've not really
1: looked, you, know, you, you do it more than I do, but I've not really looked into the lyrics of this one. If it doesn't tug at the heartstrings, it definitely tugs at the violin strings, or or bows at the
0: strings.
1: (laughs) For this one, Chris, I'm going to score eight. I was really undecided here. On my notes, I've got it down as a seven. Is it an eight? Do you prefer it to to wouldn't I be someone? Yes, I do. But then looking at some of... Oh, no, you know what? I'll give it an eight. Yeah, (laughs) I'll give it an eight. You've persuaded me now. track we go to Losers and Lovers right now we're cooking with gas I could have had a whole album like this song this is exactly what the album needed at this point I think this is what should have been track two this well, track is track one track one it should have been and the first single. first single yeah should have been performed live this is phenomenal yeah
2: I've got this down as I'll put on my notes here this is my unreleased gem favorite on the album would have been great to be in the lead off single it's up tempo. it's commercial And to me, it's a precursor to Mr.
1: Natural. Yeah, it's rollicking. And I think that if more of the album had been like this and had incorporated other elements, like the electric guitar that we saw on Wouldn't I Be Someone, I think this album could have made it out there. But after
2: Saw A New Morning failed, wouldn't it have been good to to have gone with something like this? Let's... Completely change. Let's completely change. We've got nothing to lose. The last one failed, a live... Really didn't perform much, did it, from the previous album? Pretty dead. Pretty dead. (laughs) So let's throw caution to the wind. No, not, not throw caution to the wind. Let's go with something like this. Straight on the album, side one, kick off with this.
1: Kick off the single. Wow. And I'm surprised that even though the Bee Gees, they abandoned this song. But back in our episode on To Whom It May Concern, we looked at Andy Gibbs' 1975 performance of Road to Alaska, no, I think this song, Losers and Lovers, would have been perfect for Andy Gibb. Yeah. Especially at that point, and as a live track for him. So I'm surprised that he didn't pick up on this or they didn't pass it on to him. We
2: go about the vocals of Andy being very similar to Barry's. I think, because Barry is
3: main
1: vocalist on this song, isn't yeah. he? Because we never really had it, apart from After Dark, but that was never really intentional, that we never had an Andy and Barry duet and I think Losers and Lovers could have been that song where they do that. It would have been interesting to hear both of them. It probably would have been
2: even interesting to hear either Morris or Robin duet with Andy. I mean, I've no idea what the lyrics are about.
1: I'll read through the lyrics here. I saw the fire, I heard them say. They would go on dancing there till the breaking of the day. Losers and lovers looking for a reason to be glad. Down inside the forest, I stumbled on a crowd. Caravans with purple wheels and the people shouting loud, losers and lovers, forgetting that the world is going mad. So this could be a song about, if this is the same character who's been from the beginning of the album and from Life in a Tin Can, they've gone into this forest, they've come across this travelling community. Yeah, I would say travelling community, especially when you mentioned about the wheel colours and stuff. And it's about this person finding finding out about their society and their way of living. Maybe, you know, this character seems to be living such a maudlin and sad life with all of these ballads, suddenly to find this other way of life yeah. with all these people celebrating the lovers and the losers, singing loud, dancing the night away. That's as far as I can think, but I don't understand further than that what, what relevance this song has to that wider story, if there is a wider story.
2: But I think this has got
1: Barry written all over it, Oh, you? goodness, yeah. Just the lyric, underneath the warm September sky they're reminiscing and all the years before me the losers and the lovers passing by yeah yeah that's that's completely barry could have come out of his poetry book couldn't it
2: I don't even think this song sounds dated. If you were going to release this and you wanted something to encourage people to buy it,
1: this would be great to hear on the radio. Are there other songs of the era that this reminds you of? Any other type of music that you think that this would fit in well? No, I honestly can't
2: think. It's unique to this, this album. I mean, I'd go as far as to say it's probably one of my favourite Gees recording from 72. It's that good. I've also read online, which, going back to what we said about the single, that there was was an acetate with this and Home Again Rivers. Whether it was either just two tracks from the session they wanted to put on an acetate to send round, or whether this was going to be a proposed
1: single. They are sequenced together on the album, so is that a coincidence that they're going to be put together as A-side, B-side? Well, they did with Elisa, Wouldn't I Be Someone. So potentially, then, this could have
2: been a single. They didn't do a follow-up single for Tin Can. No going on their records they used to put sort of A and B sides were from the album if you'd have put another single 8 you'd have had half the album
1: <laughs> on two singles <laughs> yeah there's no reason why they wouldn't have been planning a follow up and yeah. as we've said Losers and Lovers perfect single and Home Again Rivers is a really fine B side yeah. and that would, re- would sort of represent the album wouldn't it it would how would you score Losers and Lovers oh I've gone with a 9 on that me too I said with Lonely Violin that that started a really strong run of five songs where we've gone from strength to strength and we're about to hit another strength because I think the next song is the best on the album. You do, dear. Home Again Rivers. Easily. We now reach the last song on side one, Home Again Rivers. I must sound like such a hypocrite and so contradictory because I've said in quite a few previous episodes that I'm not so keen on country or bluegrass. I said that with The Kids No Good, with Cucumber Castle. And here we've got a country ballad. And I think the single reason why I love this one so much is because it's got Robin on lead vocals. We've not what had What do you think this
2: is track nine from Teen Can? Yeah, because I do. When I heard this, that, oh, it was this. Was it was this a leftover from Tin Can? It would have fitted snugly in with that. Yes.
1: No, I, I absolutely love
2: everything about yeah. this song. So you probably think it's probably a link between Tin Can and this
1: this set of recordings. Yeah, but I do wonder what arrangement it would have had on Tin Can. It Probably wouldn't have been much different. I mean, like you, I think Robin's vocals.
2: The emotion he puts into it. And I like the way the harmonies come in on the chorus.
1: I mean, it's just captivating. It just sort of pulls you in, doesn't it? Well, the song's structure, I didn't realise this until I looked at the lyrics, that the chorus only comes in at the end. And it comes in with all of the three brothers coming in for the harmonies. And it's a very warm sounding. Mm. They're all coming in. It's the three of them on that final and only chorus of the song. It's beautiful. So going back to what you said on the lyrics on the previous song, is this all sitting along by the riverbank then, with the caravans behind them? Yeah, but this is, I think, where the story ends. You said that Losers and Lovers was your favourite of 72. This is my favourite of 72, easily. For us two, this ends Side One on two of her favourite tracks. I think Side One as a whole has been very, very strong, as Joe Brennan said. It's a stronger set of songs than the previous set. Well, because it's varied. Yeah. So we've had Country and Western with Home Again Rivers, We've had something up-tempo and rollicking with losers and lovers. We've had piano ballads, we've had a soaring electric guitar, MOR, no falsetto yet. just no <laughs> falsetto. Give it two albums.
0: Your is
1: wild. But I also think with Home Again Rivers, not only is it the best song on the album, one of my favourite Bee Gees melodies of all time. You'd put this on a compilation, would it? Oh, easily, it? Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. just something so warm and beautiful, and it's got that whimsy and nostalgia to it. Yeah. Sort of hairs in the back of your neck, it's like, it's like a warm blanket. Oh, absolutely. A lump in my throat, yeah. goosebumps, yeah. that Robin's vocals during this period can just do. He sort of jumped up a notch from 71. You know, after
2: after being so prolific from 69, 70, I felt there was a little bit of a slump in his... Trafalgar. Yeah, they, they were a, bit, to a few dirges and they just didn't really produce the stuff that he was doing 18 months prior. Yeah. So it's great now that he's come back. And unfortunately, it, it's some of his best vocals that, are, that have not been released, isn't it?
1: Because he's got that thing to his vocal where he puts across the emotions of... Sadness and melancholy, but it's not like Bob Dylan where it's it really grates on me and I, I, I can't I couldn't listen to an album no, of that. I couldn't, I couldn't. Whereas Robin has this underlying, I wouldn't say sweetness, but there's that something that draws you in. And and despite how maudlin it can be, it's never to the extent of being depressing. But I think with his vocals, the positive it works so well as part of a Bee
2: Gees album. But I do find a whole album of his. Mm. You need that contrast. Okay. That's why I think it's he, he works brilliantly as part of the, the three of them. It'd be quite nice if, for a solo role to have put a, a duet with a female. Like I think in 1980 he did one with Marcia Levy or something. I mean, I, I won't talk about the duet he did with the Muppets. Was it the Muppets or um, Sesame Street or something? <laughs> he, he did one. But um, no, I, I think it, it just breaks that type of vocal up. That's me personally. But going again to Home Again Rivers, the the, the vocal, I mean, I've been listening to this and I think it's probably one of his best vocals since I started a joke. He's
1: nailing it every time. It's just superb. I'm kind of struggling to find other things to say about it because it's so beautiful that I don't want to try and dissect it too much because I feel like I would ruin the magic of it. Sometimes it's really difficult to just express how a song makes you feel. And there's only so many ways that you can say that something sounds beautiful without tiring yourself. And and I, and I kind of imagine that I could talk about this song until the cows come home, but I can't say anything more than this is just yeah. more beautiful. And and the way that it makes me feel, I find difficult to express into words. This is exactly what I look for in the Bee Gees music. And, and for me, it was
2: quite a nice to get this back again in living eyes, you know, we're back. That's that was one of the highlights of that album for me. Was actually hearing Robin full vocal. I'm going to score this one an eight. Ten. But it's weird, isn't it, that just going over these
1: five tracks, according to my scores, my least favourite was the single. Well, there you go. I mean, that proves how strong of a side this is. But equally, the fact that your least favourite song from side one was the single, I think goes again to prove just how much of a disconnect there was between the Bee Gees and their audience. And on Tim Roxborough's Bee album ranking website, when he's talking about Life Knit in a Tin Can, he said that the failure of Saw a New Morning and the failure of Life Knit in a Tin Can in the charts proved that the commercial sensibilities of the Gibbs were undeniably off. And I think that goes to show again here that you've got a side where one side of the album, five songs, and the weakest, for both of us, probably the weakest song on those across those five songs was chosen as the lead single just proves that someone somewhere wasn't quite sure of what they were doing we don't know who was choosing the singles was it stickwood was it the Bee Gees? and particularly because it was this, we're talking of a new label as well aren't we yeah they needed a complete change
2: you know we're, we're not Polydor anymore we've now gone and worked with different producers we're doing this let's show them what we we can do outside the the ballads you know which they are really good at it's not something you would not want them to do anymore.
1: But it's just coming out on the radio as something completely different. Yeah, they needed a clean slate and Wouldn't I Be Someone, I think is a great song undeniably, but it just wasn't that.
2: And both them singles got good reviews in the the music papers. Yeah. So it's a bit of a one-sided thing. The Bee Gees were probably seeing these reviews coming through... In advance. In advance, and and it was all liked, but that didn't represent in the charts.
1: We'll see how things go now, looking onto side two. So starting off side two, we have a little bit of a medley. We've got Harry's Gate. And in the ultimate biography, this is described as a bittersweet meditation on aging and old times irretrievably gone.
2: I've looked on, online and there are a lot of people that think this should
1: have been the first single. Only when it's coupled with Rocky LA. I don't think it quite, the, the impact isn't there when it's just Harry's Gate mm-hmm. on its own as a song. I mean, I
2: still prefer losing Lovers, but again, it's fairly commercial. And I like the way it starts side two off. I think this one, they could have used this on the recent documentary. And again, I find this a very emotive song because I have read that Harry's Gate did exist and they used to swing on it back in 1958. Oh yeah,
1: it would have worked really well for the documentary then. And then you've got Barry obviously on the first verse, followed by Robin. It opens up side two with a soft piano ballad. In a similar way to Elisa opening up side one as a piano ballad. So I'm not sure that that was the best move, um, but it is a good side opener.
2: Looking at what's to come, yeah. I think it is the best of what's left. Right, okay.
1: For an opener for side two. Because
2: at the minute we're just talking about the ten songs in yeah. the original real, aren't we? It would have been nice on this one, I think, to, to actually, if they're talking about that time, to so have had Morris on vocal as well. So all three are reminiscing back in 58... In 1979, Chris, Barry did an interview for Rolling Stone and he recalled we had an album tentatively titled A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants. Seriously, ow. <laughs> it's easy to laugh about this because it was never released, he goes on to say. One song it was called Harry's Gate, which was about a gate we used to swing on when we
1: were kids. So I think from reading that, Barry seems quite dismissive of the song. As we said in the Tin Can episode, he has this mentality of, if it wasn't a hit and if people didn't like it, then he's going to disregard it. But if you don't release it, you don't know, do you? And it's easy to forget. Yeah. I mean, it must be so easy for them to to have that volume of work. But then if you move on to another project, two albums later, you'll have forgotten about everything that you did or, you know, the obscure stuff that you did, especially if it's unreleased a few years back.
0: I hear some music
1: The strings on this track do border on saccharine and sickly sweet, but they do suit the story's themes of nostalgia and sentimentality. And they come into the mix when Robin says, I hear some music, some old-fashioned music. And so then to have these, I assume it's a string quartet, ...coming in, it really helps to to back what Robin is singing about.
2: Which is what they do on this album, isn't it? As we said with um, A Lonely Violin and Home Again Rivers... ...Jimmy's done a really good job of pairing up lyrics and music, hasn't
1: he? Yeah. Do you think that's because of his um, doing film scores and stuff? As a film composer, not that I am one or have any experience with it... ...but I, I imagine that you're watching the film or reading through the script... And as a composer, you're picking up on certain key moments in the script that you know are going to need to to have the most impact, whether that's with loud bombastic orchestras or as a really quiet moment Mm. in the soundtrack. And so for him to be able to then come in and if the Bee Gees are working in kind of a a reverse order, where they're presenting these songs with scat vocal parts and then uh, Haskell is fitting in the instrumentation into that, He's able to listen to the songs, listen to the lyrics, read the lyrics, and then find points in which find okay, an arrangement
2: that matches up exactly. Yeah. yeah,
1: which may have been a different way to how they were working with Shepherd, which I think was all. It wasn't all in the studio at the same time, but the songs might have been demoed anyway, and just yeah, the orchestra fitted in with the um, how they was going to go from the demo. This song contains one of my misheard Bee Gees lyrics. And as we get later on in the 70s, I've got quite a lot of misheard (laughs) lyrics. So the last line of the song, it's listed on websites as we knew we'd live throughout the drive. But I always heard it as we knew we'd live throughout the jive. Poignancy when you then consider two years later jive talking. But then drive matches up with the driveway for the gate. So drive must be the right lyric, but it's one that I'd always, not until doing the preparation for this podcast, I was writing out the lyrics, then double-checked it, then realised that it's drive, not Not jive.
2: When you mishear a lyric, that stays with you forever.
1: Oh, yeah. You get the album,
2: you look at the lyrics, oh, that's what it is.
1: Now, going back to instrumentation, my ears pricked up when I first heard this song, because in the transition from this to Rocky LA, what do we have? A synthesiser. Which is what you mentioned earlier. It's an unusual synthesised sound. It's completely different to the Moog from To Whom It May Concern. Here we've got a much more... It's kind of staccato-y, electric piano notes. And it adds so much to the sonic palette of the album. And I kind of feel like it should have been used a bit more. Yes, because Rocky LA, it increases the tempo, doesn't it? So that that's probably the link that they wanted to do. But when I first heard this album... I listened to it without looking at the track listing, so I assumed that Rocky L.A. was this. They were both one of the same song. Yeah. I didn't realise that they were two separate tracks that are, that, that, that just sequenced together. I, I kind of find it difficult to to score this song isolated from Rocky L.A., but it, I'd give it a seven. Yeah, I've, I've got a seven as well. Rocky L.A. has a similar feeling to Losers and Lovers, and that's what the album needed at this point. And I think here we're getting a different kind of vocal performance from Robin. I thought this was, to me, sounds like a follow-up
2: to A Road to Alaska. Yeah. With Robin actually rocking Robin, isn't he? He, he, he rocks out. Well, in fact, to be honest with you, I think oh, the Bridges break into a sweat on this one, don't they? After, really, you can sort of say nearly four sides worth of music, to then get
1: this. I think this is a, this is a welcome break to be honest with you and at 32 seconds into the song there's a really seamless transition from robin's vocals into barry's which on most listens i kind of didn't realize that they swapped lead singing
3: around, dead, nice.
1: Robin singing with a kind of harder rockier voice a rocky la voice and and then when it switches into barry's yeah you, you kind of don't notice it
2: but what i think is clever about this as well is that they talk about 1958 and the previous one, but on this one, it's got the music's got a got a a fifties vibe to it as well, the Shandana bit. I was looking back at it and I was thinking, I was thinking, well, in 72, end of 72, 73, there was quite a lot of revival of the fifties. I mean, David Essex was in a film called That'll Be the Day with Ringo Starr. And obviously that that related back to the fifties. Yep. Then you've got 73, Ringo Starr actually released your sixteen which was from that era. Yeah. But then you've also, in the UK, you had groups like the Roubettes that were 50s pastiche, Shawaddy Waddy, Wizard, See My Baby Jive. It was all hinting back to 50s stuff, even probably early 10cc. So this would actually, I think, had it had a proper release, it wouldn't have been out of place in the charts for 72, 73.
0: You touch my hand.
1: And was there that quotation that you read before about, was it from Jimmy Haskell about receiving the songs with just scat vocals? I wonder whether the Shanana bits are from the end, were original just scat vocals, maybe they intended to replace them but never did? Yeah, it possibly could, couldn't it? And again, great electric guitar work. I presume it's Kendall again. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. With any album I always think there's one song that acts as a precursor to the next album and for a kick in the head, despite it not being released I'd still think that Rocky LA is that one song where you you listen to it and you can hear down the road from the next album Tempo-wise, yes, but not so much the other stuff I still
2: think that Loser Lovers is more indicative of what's to come But both songs would sit comfortably on Mr Natural Wouldn't say so much main course,
1: but definitely Mr. Natural. Do you think Rocky LA could have done something to the charts? I'm sad to say I don't think it would.
2: I think it might have got some airplay. And I think it would have done better in the UK than the US. That's just my thoughts on the style of music. Whereas probably Losing Lovers, I I would say that had a 50-50 with both. Because as I say, because of what's gone at the scene at the time here, then I I think it would have um, worked better here. But have you, have you looked into the lyrics at all on this one? What
1: is Rocky L.A.? So I've got a little theory about what that could be. I reckon that this song started as a jam. Maybe after they finished Harry's Gate, they just started jamming away an instrumental. The Rocky L.A. title probably comes from the fact that this was a Rocky instrumental composed in L.A., but then they managed to weave it back into Harry's Gate, but it just retained that Rocky L.A. title. Yeah. It's a continuation of Harry's Gate, but it's a different type of, whereas Harry's Gate was very whimsical and nostalgic and sentimental, Rocky LA kind of carries on with that. But because of the different tempo, it kind of changes the whole perspective of the song.
2: Do you think they could have edited both songs down into one? Do you think it would
1: have worked? And I probably would have lost the uh, Shannon yeah, yeah. from from the ending of Rocky LA. I think you could have cut that out and you could have had a tighter four minute two song suite. Yeah. I'm sure they could have done something like that, but
2: I mean it's great at the minute because obviously we, we're getting two separate songs in full, aren't we? Yeah But this is another, another one of my favorites from the album, these two songs means they're sort of matched together. Would you go with your seven again yeah. as last one. Yeah, yeah that's respect. what I've done. I've gone with the seven as well.
0: Found myself walking on the shore I was where the water was shallow. Looking up at the darkness I saw Standing in the moonlight Something I could never work out Living, never understand We're all living together
1: have the next song, Castles in the Air. I think it's a great song.
2: It's got a beautiful melody. And I just like the way the vocals between Robin and Barry
1: work. I just think they're excellent. This sounds very similar to Elisa, Lonely Violin, Harry's Gate. And I kind of feel that after the up-tempo movement into Rocky LA, to then go back to another piano ballad, you know, it was that same problem that we had with Alive on side two of Toom It May Concern. It was just kind of out of place. It never enthuses me. Saying that, I, I agree with you. I think there's a wonderful chorus, particularly when the arrangement comes crashing in. And there's an interesting structure to the verses with Barry punctuating each line with the pronoun. It gives the flow of the lyrics a kind of an, an offbeat meter. So when you have the lines, one o'clock in the morning, I was, in between the shadows, find myself. And then, I could never work out, baby, never understand. Playing snooker at midnight, played myself, Fell oh, okay. into the sports life. All of them. There's that always that contrast in the middle of the lines, which we've not really seen before.
2: I must admit, I, I hadn't noticed that one. But I tell you what, I did think the end of this, the the way the music goes, it reminds me of uh, the end of of Mister Blue Sky by ELO. That's true. Yeah, I, I was listening to it. I didn't. It didn't strike yeah. the first time. Then, then I played it and in in the car, and I thought. Do you know this reminds me of something? You know what it is. You, you, you're trying to think, and then I think, ah, oh, I know what it is. It's just the way that it goes out, and same as Mr. Blue Sky. Yeah. I
0: could never work-
1: An unusual choice for him to do, because I just don't think he's he's got the voice for this kind of softer song.
2: But I think he he worked well, you're not so keen, but I thought he worked well with the marbles, and and that's, like you, you, you sort of associate that with him, but I mean, he obviously was given the track quite quickly if it was released in 73. Yeah.
1: I wonder whether he was given the song before the album was canned. He was under the assumption that this is a Gibb song that will be released on their next
2: album. Or Barry contacted him and said, look, it's not dissimilar to the songs we gave you in 68, 69. Yeah. Give it a try and see what you think. So it's a (laughs) (laughs) B-side. I think, though, that uh, the Bee Gees must have liked this one because I think in 78 they released a promotional LP or something, wasn't it, where there was clips of songs and there was about a 30-second clip of Castles in there that actually appeared on that. So that's the only time. Or I think virtually one
1: of the only things from this set of songs to get a get a release there's a kind of a timeless quality to this song I think it could have been re-released at a later point I don't know if it would have fit on any other album it's unusual that they picked this one yeah I'm I'm wondering whether whether because Graham Bonnet covered it it whether it got obviously
2: got a bit of exposure so they wanted to put it on this I actually do like this song as the
1: same as the previous two so I'm going to go with a seven again Okay, I've given it a six And now on to the penultimate song on the album Where Is Your Sister I've no idea What's the next track? Well, we couldn't have had a Bee Gees album without Barry's
2: acoustic ballad. Yeah, I've put down this as a pretty song. I mean, I like Barry's vocal on this, when he
1: goes into the smooth, easy style that he sings. There's a beautiful melody there, set to unusual lyrics I can never quite make sense of. The only thing that I could pick out from this song is that it's referring to a funeral. I thought it was leaving Leslie in Australia. Oh, it could be. Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that. But I think this is another of those acoustic ballads that Barry can just write in his sleep. You know, he can write these songs ten a penny, and they're all amazing. I do like that on all of these early 70s albums, there's always that spot on the album for Barry's acoustic ballad. Um, But I just don't think this is the strongest of them. Like Castles in the Air, I've given Where Is Your Sister a six. Yeah, well, I've dropped down to a six for this one. I've got this down as probably one of my weakest on the on the LP, to be honest with you. so In the Life in a Tin Can episode, we looked at the cover of Summer Ends and I would rather have had Summer Ends in place of this.
2: Talking of covers, I've never ever seen anywhere where there was a ideas for a cover for this LP. There's there's the Masters going round and things and it was going to be
1: released, but where the cover, they hadn't got as far as the cover. But then how do you represent a kick in the head or a kick in the pants?
2: And there's no real titles from these songs that, that would
1: you could put as a LP is that? I think Losers and Lovers. It typifies the mood of the album. Yeah.
2: I don't know whether you've noticed it, but the guitar, when, when, when Barry, Barry's playing, it does remind me slightly of Here Comes the Sun from Abbey Road. You know, that sort of gentle.
1: Playing and things, and they're both quite similar, you know, pretty songs. And Mm. And looking at this as a soft acoustic Barry ballad, I've gone through the last five albums and I've picked out Barry's soft acoustic ballads, and so I'll list them through. We've had from two years on onwards, we've had Tell Me Why, The Greatest Man in the World, I Can Bring Love, South Dakota Morning, and Where Is Your Sister. How would you rank those five songs? Well, where is your sister? Probably at the the bottom. So we've had Tell Me Why from two years on. Uh, Probably near the bottom as well. Greatest Man in the World. Higher up. I Can Bring Love. Top. South Dakota Morning. Probably I Can Bring Love. Greatest Man.
2: South Dakota. You see, this is terrible, isn't it? Because... I did the podcast for for that one. And, And the tune to Tell Me Why doesn't come into my head straight away. I don't think you were very appreciative of it. No. So I think it might have been... I might have gone then with Where Is Your Sister, then Tell Me Why, I think.
1: Yeah. But it goes to show that these songs are so second nature to Barry that it's kind of intuitive for him to put one out on every album. This is the result of it. And they're always really lovely. I wasn't so keen on Tell Me Why, but it's still a really nice little song. And Where Is Your Sister... Last, I agree with you that it might be the weakest on the album. It's still... Well, we've given it a six, haven't we? So it's still above average. Yeah. So before you revisited kick in the head for this podcast when was the last time that you played the album i tend to have spurts what i used to do was was basically think
2: i'm going to start i'm just going to do the, the 70s i'm going to do the 80s so you'd put it in the car play it once right and i put i bring two or three cds at the order that i'm going to play them in so it'll be, it'd be tin can kick in the head straight into mr natural and then whether i'd fit andy's in I can't remember, but it generally I'd have a run. Then probably a couple of months. Then I would I'm gonna do the '80s now and stuff. Yeah, I was lucky because I got the three. Th- there was three CDs. There was the Kids No Good. There was this one, and then Barry's album from '1986. Is that the Hawks? Hawks one, yeah. But it was it was what it was pre Hawks because Hawks was made up from tracks from this other album. I believe I'm not 100 percent sure. I'll have to do a bit more investigating, but I think it's got about. 12, 14 tracks on it or something. So that's
1: where the original... That's where I originally heard Words of a Fall on. And so before revisiting the album this time round, were there any songs that had stuck in your mind as being, oh, I'm looking forward to revisiting it? Or was it... Had you kind of forgotten the contents of the album? I always liked Harry's Gate and Home Again
2: Rivers. But I think it goes to, back to what I've said before. When, when you play something that's unreleased, it feels special as well. Yeah you're thinking nobody's heard this and I've got to hear it so it always had that you know the other side to it, it always had that little appeal that you're listening to something so rare yeah even though it's splashed over the internet now but at
1: the time it wasn't and now on to the last song on the album it doesn't matter much to me there was a budget label
2: I think it's contour and they released an album called gotta get a message to you and it was actually this unreleased version that appeared on there. So there was this one and a snippet of Castles in the Air.
0: I've been looking forward to this day for so, so long Could loving you be so, so wrong does of to me
1: I think it's a suitable ending to the album. Again there's a really powerful chorus we've seen a few times on the album that the Bee Gees are just so good at doing. I think again it's got a
2: great Robin vocal on this as well. Oh yeah, again where he's get a chance to rock out, particularly at the end of the song where he he sort of goes off into Robin Land, doesn't
1: he? And he's trading vocals with Barry again. And when you couple that with the plucky country guitar playing, I think this one is quite reminiscent of Tin Can. We said it with lonely violin whether this is one of those other songs that could have been written with tin can but they just you know decided to revisit on the next album after listening to to this one chris do you think
2: out of all these songs that this was the correct one to put onto mr natural do you think
1: other songs could have been a better choice this song doesn't sound like anything else on mr natural it's surprising that they chose this as the b-side as i said before you know there are other songs losers and lovers rocky la even without harry's gate they could have put as the b-side if they were going to choose it as the b-side i would assume that this is their favorite from the album yeah unless it's
2: one that uh arif liked whether they he they gave him the tape to listen to
1: alongside things like give a hand take a hand yeah
2: and he thought that he could do something with it personally it would have been uh, losers that I, I would have put forward on that album you know it's 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 not a bad track but
1: it screams B-side to me as well. Yeah. I have to be honest that quite a few times listening to A Kick in the Head, I would probably stop listening to it after Rocky L.A. And sometimes I'd just go back to the beginning because I think Side One is so good and I really love Harry Gate, Rocky L.A. And sort of the end of the album just tails off a little bit. I always think it makes such a difference when the last song isn't a favourite because there are some albums out there by different artists where... I might not be so keen on the beginning or the middle of the album, but if there's a last song that's so good, I'm going to sit through that album knowing that there's that... One good track to come. One good track to come, yeah. And um, this one doesn't have it. But then again, for this album to have been recorded so quickly amidst other work that they were doing... Phenomenal, rate, right, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and none of these songs I would classify as bad. At worst, they're a 6 out of 10, which is still, as you said, above average... Mm. Still a good score. When we looked at The Loner, The Kids No Good, Sing Slowly Sisters, I think you would agree that there were one or two songs on those albums that we would have just taken off the album completely. Whereas this album really feels like this was an album that was just ready to go. It just needed a release and it would have been out there. I can't say on many of the songs that I would have changed much in the way of arrangements, production, wouldn't have redone... No, I wouldn't change anything. No, none of the vocals... The only songs that I'm not so keen on, like It Doesn't Matter Much To Me, is just personal and subjective. And you find that on a released album,
2: so it's no different, is it?
1: But do you think this is, from the songs that we've looked at, is this the right choice for an album closer? Is there anything else that you would have closed off a kick in the head with?
2: You possibly could have swapped this one with Castles In The Air and go out with Castles In The Air. Because that ELO style orchestral ending, it would be a nice way to end the album. Yeah, quite happy with Side One. In fact, I'm quite happy the way this is done anyway. It was just literally those those two that I would swap around. It'd be quite nice to get Rocky LA and then another up song, Two Together.
1: But I understand why they chose it as the last song, because I think this kind of typifies the themes of the album. You know, we've got the, more of the pleading and nostalgia, particularly the parts. Do you remember all the nights and all the love we went through? You wouldn't have me when I was a young man, but tonight I'm going to try. That kind of thing of... Still looking back, there's a sense of resolution to this song.
0: But tonight, try. It much to me. Oh, baby,
2: On the Towers of Brother Gibb, the version they play is from the uh, seventy four. But it's quite interesting. There's a quote from Barry. He's got record plant again. Good performance from Robin. Not a very good song. So if you say not a very good song, why did
1: they try it out twice? I think his hindsight. At the time, I'm sure Barry very much favoured it as well. But because it was associated then with a single from the following album that didn't perform well, as you've said before, if a song doesn't chart well, Barry tends to ignore it. Yeah. And so this, this song is suffered that fate. But looking back to previous album closers with Walking Back to Waterloo, Sweet Song of Summer, Methods to My Madness, which I rated all of those songs really highly, I think then to get It Doesn't Matter Much to Me. I don't dislike it, but I just don't think it's in the same league. No, it is good to
2: hear Robin, you know, rocking it out again, which I, I think makes the album a little bit more diverse. But saying that, Chris, it's got a really great
1: string arrangement in the background. Again, it's what we were saying before about Haskell's ability to underlie, I think, the more emotive mm. songs and the ballads with just the right appropriate and complementing arrangements that just really help to uplift what the song, what the message of the song is saying. Yeah, and Robin really goes through it at the end of the song
3: as oh,
2: well, yeah. doesn't he? So. For this one, I'm going to go with a six.
1: Yeah, like you, going to go with a six as well. Going
2: back to the Lazenby's post that's on the Steve Hoffman website, he goes on to say, like side one almost seems to end on a cliffhanger with a female character played by Robin going off in search of her love who has since started his trek home after being absolved of his crimes in the previous albums, Come Home, Johnny get We then get a four song break but it doesn't matter much to me, it's her knocking on his door and the two of them being reunited. Yeah, I never read into it that much. No, no. I didn't. That's, unfortunately, that's sort of floated above my head though.
1: <laughs> I thought I'd mention it because if anybody is, has been, um, who sees a storyline in there. I mean, it's good because it does encourage me to revisit the album and try and follow that story. And I'll definitely try and listen out again to mm-hmm. It Doesn't Matter Much To Me. But I do like these these extra layers that you can find because when you start to uncover them it, it can increase my appreciation of yeah. an album i find that with a lot of concept albums ones that you have to keep revisiting but even if you have to wait a year and then revisit them sometimes they can start to reveal new hidden depths for something yeah. yeah well i'm glad you you've read into it because i couldn't it but... lost me after saw new <laughs> <laughs> but talking of the steve hoffman forums i do recommend them if any anyone hasn't visited that website because There's discussion on all types of music and we refer to it quite a lot for preparation for these Bee Gees podcasts.
2: Any artist, isn't it? There's always quite a bit. You have to sort of work your way around it sort of thing. It's not the easiest
1: of sites sometimes to find things, but
2: once you do, it's good, isn't it? And it's a good site to follow what an artist is doing as well.
1: Yeah, there's an album by album thread for the Bee Gees that I sometimes pop back into and and see what people say.
2: People on there refer quite a bit to Wikipedia, but Again, you also get people's personal opinions, which is really good as well.
1: So that concludes A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants in its original 10-track listing. Fortunately, we do have extra songs again, yeah. unlike Tin Can. We've got four songs. Would you like to run through what they are? First one I've got
2: Dan as King and Country, Jesus in Heaven, Life Am I Wasting My Time, and Dear Mr Kissinger. Mm-hmm. Now these were, all, I think I mentioned, they were all
1: recorded in the UK in January nineteen seventy-three. Three of them, I think, are very political. Perhaps some of the most political songs that the Bee Gees ever wrote. So do you think they were influenced by spending that much time in the UK in the US? I think so because there's two songs here that have overt references. We've got Dear Mr. Kissinger for a start. Mr. Dear we? Mr. Kissinger, and then King and Country, which is about the Vietnam
0: War. All the love of my mother I offer to you And I'll try so very hard to get you through If I lay down my life For my king and countrymen Would I change you for the better The better be alright To be always like children Night.
1: So we'll start with King and Country. And I've got a quotation from Barry from the Tales of the Brothers Gibb box set. And he says, This came out of one of my solo sessions. I think it's about Vietnam. Too long and too slow. Well, he says it's one of his songs. This is BRM. Yeah.
2: Well, funny if you read that, because that is what I've put in my notes. I've put here, I sort of like this one. It seems a bit slow. It really reminds me of the acoustic ballad King Kathy from the fan club EP.
0: You're King, countrymen.
1: It also has quasi-religious and medieval connotations that I think make this song feel like it could have been on Cucumber Castle. Yeah, as, as Barry says, it is a bit too long and a bit too slow and a bit too ploddy. But saying that, again, I'm going to twist it, I do really like it. You do? Yeah, yeah. I, c- I can't quite get into this one.
2: My opinions are the same as King Cathy. For me, it doesn't really go anywhere and it just needs
1: it needs that something extra a bridge to take it somewhere <laughs> then back but some really beautiful double tracking of Barry's vocals here when he sings i'll be here when you arrive i'll be here when you're gone it's one of those tugging of the heartstrings but i think it's just barry proving that he knows or that the brothers know effortlessly just how to structure a song you know this is one of those examples you've got the scat outro which i really like as well when that's accompanied with the strings and, uh...
0: I was here when you arrived. I'll be here when you're gone. If I lay down my life,
1: the came. I think it's a really nice, nice song, but it doesn't. Suit, a kick in the head. I I wouldn't put this near it. And and being a B-side is is the right place. Well, I I disagree about being a B-side. I've got an opinion about these four songs. I think that they should have been released as an EP because they're all of a piece, they're all of a theme. Whether it's a bit of a fan divide of this one, I'm not sure
2: because from the last podcast, I think you read out Tim Roxburgh's What Ones He Likes and I think this was one of them. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I do like this one quite a lot. I remember listening to it on the towels, and and then I think, oh gosh, this is long,
0: <laughs> and, and
2: I must, and I've never really looked forward to it coming on. It, I I don't often skip, but this one I would would skip. Okay. I don't know whether it's me or not, Chris, but at four thirty eight on this, when he's doing the der 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 bits, I always want to go into the beginning or a part of Mister Natural. You know, the when I walk in the. Is it when I walk in the rain? Uh-huh. Yeah. You you listen and, and, and every time I hear it, I always want to burst into that part of Mr. Natural. <music> you probably need to slow
1: the uh, Mr. Natural part down but I think it fits in quite well do you think subconsciously that's got anything to do with the fact that Mr. Natural comes after King and Country on Tales from the Brothers Gibb? possibly I
2: never thought of it that way but it's just that when when I was played King and Country in, in the car and I was thinking what does this remind me of <laughs> and I kept thinking it was a track from from um, Main Course it weren't until I went and looked to find the lyrics that I had to go through the lyrics because I, I could hum the bit but I couldn't get to the chorus (laughs) Jesus in heaven
0: can as we are dying, only try to survive. I will not pray for you, I wasn't born to. I'm only trying to survive.
1: Next up, we have Jesus in Heaven. And like King and Country, This song really takes the religious analogies. There's a song from 1964 that Barry wrote called One Road, and that's got very overt religious connotations. Oh, right. You've been listening to the Australian years, have you? Might be a preview of what's to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, funny, on this one, I've put the backing reminds me of every Christian. Yeah. Now, this is one of the songs from this period where i think you can really hear morris i've put on mine here is that morris on the chorus i think so yeah he's he's definitely taking the lower half of the register that is that de- i'm i'm certain that that's him it's quite nice to hear them all singing that
2: lower register as well yeah which we don't get to hear that often
0: jesus in heaven
1: I would say out the four songs, Jesus in Heaven is my least favourite, but there are certain track listings of A Kick in the Head where Jesus in Heaven is sequenced next to Castles in the Air, and to me, both of them are kind of, I always think of both together. All right. Quite a lot of the times so when I'm listening to Jesus in Heaven, I'm kind of expecting it to go into Castles in the Air. And then again with Barry as well, he, he brings a lot of power and emotion to
2: this one, so obviously the lyrics must mean something to him, so... I'm wondering whether whether it was a Barry-influenced lyric on this? Well, I would think so, yeah. There's one part I like, Chris, as well, is when Barry sings the word survive, at the beginning it's, it's quite deep, and then gradually throughout the song it gets higher and higher until they all come in on the chorus, on the survive bit, which I think the word survive goes against what the lyrics seem to be about. I don't know, you know, Jesus, we are dying, you know, can somebody help us? And then it's like, trying to you know we are trying to survive
1: it's like the classical music thing of the notes starting quite minor but then but then resolving to a much yeah. more major lift
2: yeah and i and I think it's whether it's lyrics are quite deep and that's why they sing in a lower register because obviously to get the feel of the song at the end they're they're all coming and try and it lines the mood up yeah
1: what I was saying about this song being placed next to Castles in the Air on certain bootlegs fits, I think, because you've got King and Country, which is a song about war. So then to have this song about heaven and then to end with it going into Castles in the Air, I think just from a kind of lyrical point of view, it, it seems like a transition from yeah. death to heaven to then a castle in the air. Now, you said about the vocals being quite reminiscent of Every Christian line-hearted Man and we spoke about the lower register and the lower tomba of Morris's voice, kind of the last time that we hear that, because mid to late 70s, we, everything's much more higher register. Oh, that doubt, yeah. You're probably right, Chris, actually. I can't think, on top of my head, I can't think... Because in later years, Morris's voice naturally deepens again.
0: Yeah,
2: even on songs like Wildflower yeah. from Living Eyes. But no, I, I agree with you, Chris. It, it, I don't think this type of vocal arrangement we we, we don't get again we might surprise ourselves but I don't think we do
1: What were your impressions of Jesus in Heaven when you first heard it? Was it sort of similar to King and Country? I preferred it to King and Country. It's got a bit more to it. Listening to it quite a few times, it's grown on me, King and Country. I probably like Jesus in Heaven as much as King and Country. Again, I wouldn't put either of them on a kick in the head. I would keep them on the EP, as I mentioned earlier.
2: Yeah. I wonder what frame of mind they were in in January when they recorded these songs, because they're all... Not dissimilar, are they? They all all fit well together.
1: Quite a pensive mood, I think, with the topic of the songs and the arrangements that they've gone for.
2: Were they intended to swap some of these for other songs that they'd done? You know, and you've got 14 tracks, right, let's make 10 out of these 14. But um, no, there's definitely
1: no commercial material, single-wise. Well, looking at the next song, Dear Mr Kissinger, I think there is some commercial aspects that we can discuss
0: in a world that's ever changing why can't we what happened To that word Democracy Are we acting Just like dreamers That do nothing For a stunt Should they send A man like Nixon To the front Let us gather all together
2: in the land. Well, for me, Chris, this one is my favourite. Really? Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah. I'm, I'm only saying this because I think this one requires repeated listens. I think straight away you probably wouldn't think, oh, it's my best one. I think this is a really good song. I mean, obviously the Bee Gees are going political on this one. I just love the way barry's vocal is especially when he kicks in in that bit if
1: you wanna i think if you put that to a different song that's a chart topper yeah
2: but that goes to what we were saying earlier on about different parts of songs they could
1: stitch together but they, they don't really do they is this the most political the Bee Gees have ever been at least most overtly well, political. they don't really with do their lyrics do they to actually mention directly reference henry kissinger yeah do you know much about him no,
2: I mean, because we're. we're t- I mean, this was written '73, so we're talking what happened in '70. I know there was the Watergate thing, but I think that was was that '73.
1: Well, in '73, he took on the role of Secretary of State. Uh, he was working alongside Richard Nixon, who's also mentioned in the song. Was it do with Vietnam then? Yeah, well, Kissinger is credited for ending the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Oh, okay. And this was as a result of his meetings with Vietnamese negotiators near Paris. Oh, right, nothing to do with John and Yoko then. <laughs> But Paris is mentioned in the song. Now, it's not always clear to me what perspective the Bee Gees are writing this song from, because the first two verses, in a way, could be from the perspective of humanity as a collective. And I'm thinking of the lyrics, In a world that's ever-changing, why can't we? We'll surround the Vatican City hand in hand. But then the chorus could be from the perspective of a sole survivor of the Vietnamese war, or a civilian, if you want to know my family, they're all gone. And I think that is such a powerful chorus. And as you said, it's it's, it's a really awesome moment mm. in the song. If anybody's not sure, you give this three or four listens and it, and it really sinks in. Yeah. Now you said about how powerful Barry's vocal was in the chorus. Equally, when Robin comes in on the verse with the Dear Mr Kissinger line, I think that's equally as impactful. Yeah, well, they're, they're both on fire with this one.
0: If you want to meet my friends, they're
2: So, out of these four songs, Chris, this
1: is the one I would put in a kick. But then, Dear Mr. Kissinger, with what it's about and the whole American uh, context of the song, would have fitted perfectly on Tin Can.
2: So with that, Chris, shall we go into the last one, which is Life, Am I Wasting My Time?
0: Life, it is strange, it gets good, it gets bad, in my life, there's no change, there's no time for turning back, why do I...
1: Now this, for me, is the best of the four. I think, again, Robin's vocals on this are just tremendous. But it's a pleading vocal, isn't it? I'll probably go a bit back on what I said from the pre- uh,
2: previous one, because this sounds to me like two songs put together. A lot of these do, actually. I think Dear Mr Kissinger does. Yeah, and then you've got the the strange lyrics, like the title for Start Life Am I Wasting My Time. And then you've got the end of the song, which goes, my song, it goes on and on and on. Are they, are they trying to take the mickey out themselves?
1: I don't quite know with this one what, what, what it's about. But Life Am I Wasting My Time, it's got a similar feeling to Method to My Madness. It's got the, okay. same, the same sense of finality to it. And also like Method to My Madness, Life Am I Wasting Time, I, I find that it ends before it really gets to properly develop. I think it could have had a beautiful bridge, and it could have just gone to another verse and chorus and had a really grand orchestral finale. You know, something like well, walking you, back to Waterloo.
2: Do you think they they come and stuck with this song then and didn't quite know where to take it? So my song it goes on and on. In other words, it doesn't go on because we can't think of <laughs> of, of what to put next. I mean, they might have got a writer's block and just decided, no, that's enough. We'll try something else.
1: Quite prophetic lyrics, I think. Mm. It goes on and on and on. Their music will always go on. These four songs were recorded in London. Was it still with Jimmy Haskell? No, no, he obviously must have stayed in LA because
2: these were all done by the Bee Gees themselves. So it seemed like they just they needed to go in the studio and um, put these down. Is that one of the first times then? Yeah, it must, it must have been.
1: They're producing themselves?
2: Yeah. According to Joseph Brennan's notes, uh, it's got orchestra arrangements by unknown engineer. Right, okay. But it's just got producer Barry, Robin and Morris. Produced January 73. And also, Chris, along with these other four, the Beeches went back into the studio in July 73... They produced this one track, and it's called You're My Heaven. This exists on an eight-track master, and it's got written on it, demo, for a possible single. So whether they hoped that might produce the hit single, if they felt that was good, obviously, then they could compile probably an album with all these tracks. I don't think it's ever been bootlegged. So I think that was just tried out, tested, put
1: back in the locker, and... um, Right, am trying to get my head around it. So january 73 they're just about to release life in a tin can three months after to May concern they've got another album a kick in the head already in the can and they're already thinking about a third album well i think they're already thinking about a single i suppose if you put tin can when it was released
2: you're probably looking this album released the end of 73 beginning of 74 so i would have thought they went in as i say 73 If they went in July 73, I think September, they went to Japan to tour, didn't they, 73? So yeah, so whether they thought it didn't work out and then back in the studio, the end of 73. I think we talked about Japan concert in the previous podcast. Would it have been great if they'd tried one or two of these songs from Kick just to see what the audience reaction would have been? Losers and Lovers or something. Let's just throw one in that nobody's heard. Just see whether they get a good reaction Got nothing to lose, had they?
1: And and the same with what I said before about Best of Bee Gees Volume Two. If you're gonna put songs from Idea or Horizontal, why not chuck one or two of these songs on there as well? Get people to buy it. Here's a
2: couple of new tracks. Yeah. Whether whether that was the thinking in seventy two, seventy three, I mean it would be now,
1: but whether it would have been fifty years ago, I I don't know. At the time, do you remember going into record shops? Was it commonplace to see records with Stickers or labels saying includes an extra song. Was that a thing back then? I I can't hand on heart remember
2: because you go by record shops and literally the window would be full of albums and obviously the latest releases would be a big display and I suppose sometimes the marketing people would give the record shops posters and cutouts to put in the window.
1: But no, regarding your question, Chris, I don't remember stickers all over the place, no. As you said, they could have slipped in these songs live, And if you've got a song as good as Losers and Lovers that transposes so well, I think, to a live audience. Oh, wow, yeah, it would have done, wouldn't it? Especially near the end. Throughout this episode, we've made a lot of comparisons between A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants to Life in a Tin Can, and because I consider them brother and sister albums, it's fair enough, but Life in a Tin Can, that runs to 32 minutes and 11 seconds. How long do you think A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants in the 10-track listing?
2: Well, we know that Wouldn't I Be Someone is long, and it's only the 10-track, but I, I would say... Some are not so long as you think they are. So I, I would think probably 40? 36 minutes. Wow, so there's only four minutes four minutes difference then. It feels like a longer album. A longer yeah, because you get yeah. more variety, aren't you? Yes. It's split up over 10 tracks as opposed to eight. And I always think things like that, because you get, you get like albums with, with uh, three tracks on one side and it's still 17 minutes, but it feels shorter because you're only,
1: you're, you're only used to hearing three different songs on it. And it shows that there was space for those... Four songs from oh yeah January seventy three if they wanted them on there, but I'm I'm happy with the ten tracks. Yes, I am. Album as it is, leaving it as it is. There's also
2: a post by Tim Neely on the Steve Hoffman forum regarding the mystery surrounding this album not being released. The story goes that our RCO decided not to release this album, but it may not be the case after all. In August 1973, the Bee Gees were in the States to record several hosting stints on the Midnight Special. There they met Billboard writer Nat Freeland, who interviewed them for an article, but he wanted to focus more on the group's failures rather than the successes. So it included this little tidbit. They have apparently reached a final decision to junk their last album, Master, a six-month project which no longer satisfies them. Barry says we could remix it and some of the cuts to more our liking. But if we feel the music doesn't represent what we are capable of today, it makes more sense to us to go on to another project. The record companies aren't too happy at this decision, of course, but they're not pushing us.
1: And do you think that the version of It Doesn't Matter Much To Me that's on the B-side of Mr Natural is an example of one of those remixes that they could have tried out? Yes, I think it could be. To try and satisfy their needs... And it didn't, which is then why it only ended up as a single B-side. Yeah,
2: because this was in August 73. Well, literally in in a few months' time, they were were already starting to lay tracks
1: down for Mr Natural. Yeah, but it's interesting that the common story has been that RSO, or Stigwood, cancelled the release. But actually that the Bee Gees themselves were
2: dissatisfied From an artistic point of view, does it sound better if the artist cancels it as opposed to the label and the manager?
1: And if it was the Bee Gees who cancelled the album because they were dissatisfied with it, is that only because of the, you know, the the, the poor reaction to Wouldn't I Be Someone? the the singles, yeah. Because A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants wasn't released. Naturally, we don't have the reviews from the time or the subsequent reviews that we would have had had it been released. But I did find a few thoughts. In the Ultimate Biography, A Kick in the Head is described as a much stronger album than Life in a Tin can, because it mostly avoids the worst excesses of overblown arrangements and repeated verses, as if the Bee Gees were now in command of this kind of material. The care taken with the recordings and the genuine emotion in the vocals belie any claims that this was an ineffectual piece of work. And then on All Music, Richie Unterberger says, It's not one of the Bee Gees' major works, but it's not too obvious why they decided to withhold it from the public. These are amiable, tuneful songs in the group's usual, mildly bittersweet, introspective early style. Though perhaps the production was a little too lushly laid back for its own good, I agree and disagree with points of both, both of them. them. Yeah. I think the main takeaway is that well, they they both seem to think that it's an improvement. I, I think on, on most people, I think
2: even Joseph Brennan. Yeah, I, I didn't dislike the production. No, on... I
1: think it's just it was just a little bit more sparse on Tin Can, wasn't it, to what we were used to. Yeah, and as we've said, Haskell works so well with the ballads. And because ballads were such a big part of this time frame for the BGS, that to have someone who really knows what they're doing with a ballad and can really arrange them so well them, yeah. and enhance them, that naturally it's such a perfect fit. You get songs like Home Again Rivers that I was praising because it just works so well. Yeah. Counting through our scores from what we rated every song on the album... My overall score was a 7.4. And mine was a 7.3. Yeah, the only difference there was that I rated Home Again Rivers a 10, you rated it an 8, but then you rated Castles in the Air a 7, and I gave it a 6. But yeah, a, a, around 7.5 mark is it's really good, yeah. Really good for this album. And then going through the survey that I put out and the results for that, so going through the album from lowest to highest, what do you think was the lowest rated song? Where is your sister? No. It's quite a surprising one, actually. It doesn't matter much to me. No? Oh. Uh, uh. A lady violin. I'm going to go throw 10 <laughs> in there <now>. <laughs> <laughs> So it was Rocky LA, came at the bottom with a 6.8. The scores were all really close to each other. In 8th place was Home Again Rivers, 6.9. In joint 7th place was Harry's Gate and Where Is Your Sister with a 7.1. In 6th place, Losers and Lovers, 7.7. Fifth place, Castles in the Air, with a 7.8. Fourth place, Elisa, 8.1. Then, A Lonely Violin, 8.2. Second place, It Doesn't Matter Much to Me, 8.6. And at the top, Wouldn't I Be Someone, 8.7. Okay. Well, we're miles out then, aren't we? But do you think that's got anything to do with Wouldn't I Be Someone and It Doesn't Matter Much to Me, being from two singles? They're on the box set, singles. So they're the best known... Yeah. We had a lot of messages coming in about this album. On email, Daniel Navarro says, Some of these songs could have been included into the Life in a Tin Can album, or at least thought of as a continuation of that album. Castles in the Air, A Lonely Violin, Losers and Lovers, Wouldn't I Be Someone and Elisa, I believe, fall into that category and are also the strongest tracks on the album. On It Doesn't Matter Much to Me, one could hear an early version of Falsettos by Barry, and Robin. Barry's falsetto is in the background and is reminiscent of the late 70s, while Robin just lets loose and closes the song into a frenzy. I also believe that an earlier song, Sun In My Morning, could have fit onto this album. And then on Twitter, David Fedor says, deservedly shelved. Also, had it not been outright rejected by their label, I think they would not have become the iconic band we know today. There would have been no impetus to change their sound, and they would have faded into obscurity. Which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, We'd not picked up on that. If, no. they, if they'd have thought that this style was successful and liked, and if it was successful, would they have met with a Reef Mardin? Would they have gone down R and B? Possibly not. But then this sparked a response. Salvador Compuchia responded to David's comment saying, I disagree. The songs are very good, and Jimmy Haskell's fine arrangements add even more to them. I think it was their best album between 1970 and 1974. The rejection of the album did lead them to going in a different direction, which saved their career. But the album was good. And then Stephen Deleu says, I do believe the proposed album title was their best ever. It's also a fine example of their Python-esque sense of humour. It's true. Over on Facebook, G Brewer says, I love this album and cannot believe it is unreleased. To this day... Elisa, gorgeous. This song segues into a very vulnerable Wouldn't I Be Someone. The song has really deep-feeling lyrics and a great melody. Harry's Gate has infectious melody and words, especially noting the years including 1965, etc. It makes me nostalgic for the year I was born. I also like Rocky LA, which is obviously about where the brothers have transferred themselves. I especially love Jesus in Heaven and Dear Mr Kissinger. I cannot tell in the former if they are serious or mocking, but the tune is riveting. On the latter, I love the perspective of the current events represented in the song. Lastly, the title, referring to A Kick in the Head, is just too long. That being said, Mr Gibb, please release A Kick in the Head, is worth eight in the pants properly. We love these songs, they are amazing. Hear, 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 yeah. And then Frode Apland says, having ranked all of the Bee Gees albums myself... This album is far from the bottom of the list. It might not contain any big pop hits, but it has some beautiful songs. The single, Wouldn't I Be Someone, is a stunning song. Elisa is unique because it is the only song where all three brothers sing a solo part each. This is a pretty even album with many good songs. I know the Bee Gees said this album will never be released, but I would love it if the right owners would change their minds and give it an official release. The record is simply too good to be forgotten about. And then lastly, Elizabeth Reds says, When I saw that you'd be talking about a kick in the head in your upcoming episode, I listened to it again as it had been quite a while since I last did so. It was a really pleasant reacquaintance and the songs have grown even more on me. Wouldn't I Be Someone is, of course, such a beautiful classic and a strong single. But also, some of the lesser-known songs, like A Lonely Violin, King & Country, Elisa, and the funky Rocky LA are great too. The wistful feeling of King & Country is beautiful in its simplicity, as is A Lonely Violin. It's a pity this was never published, as there are some really good songs on here. I hope they will release it at some point. I look forward to hearing your discussion and analysis of this unpublished album. I'm glad you're dedicating an episode to it. Me too as well. Yeah. Well, we were never going to leave this stone unturned. No, definitely.
2: I mean, like most of the reviewers, it, it, it opens your eyes up to tr- songs that you, you, know, you don't always,
1: you know, you listen to, but not fully. Well, I first became familiar with this album back in early 2019. You sent over to me a couple of CDs. There was A Kick in the Head and Barry's demos for Eyes That See in the Dark. And I played the Eyes That See in the Dark demos and, and loved it and, and played it on repeat for the next few months But with A Kick in the Head, at that point, I knew Life in a Tin Can, but I wasn't that enamoured by it. So I played, I started playing Kick in the Head. I remember I got to about track five and thought, this isn't what I'm into, stopped playing it and never revisited it until preparation for this podcast. And and it's a really strong album from them. And yeah, it is one of their best from the early 70s. Well, I was going to say it's
2: between when they reunited together and I'm going to call this the end of this
1: early phase yeah this is my favourite in his email Daniel Navarro said about some of the songs from A Kick In The Head being able to fit onto Life In A Tin Can so do you think you could compile a combination of Life In A Tin Can and Kick In The Head to get the ultimate album for 73
2: I think you could but I, I think you are running a little bit low on up tempo stuff but if I think if I was going to do a, what a 12 track yep yeah. one I'd probably go with something like Saw A New Morning and then I don't want to be the one I'll probably go into Losers and Lovers after that whether I keep it slightly up to go Harry's Gate Rocky LA and then a lonely violin side one side two wouldn't I be someone Elisa Come Home Johnny though I'm not 100% sure Come Home Johnny my life has been a song South Dakota Morning and Home Again Rivers
1: okay yeah that's that's a good combination as you read that out I realised some of the ones that I've missed out Uh, Like yourself, I've started with Saw A New Morning, going into I Don't Want To Be The One, track three, Come Home, Johnny Bridey, then A Lonely Violin, then Losers and Lovers, and then close side one with My Life Has Been A Song, flip over side two, Elisa, Home Again Rivers, South Dakota Morning, Harry's Gate, Rocky LA, and then close with Method To My Madness.
2: Yeah, well, I I took off Method To My Madness. Um, I think that's why I swapped with the Lonely Violin I, I, I was tempted actually To lose Come Home Johnny Bridey and put in Life Am I Wasting My Time
1: I really wanted to fit that on the album I really wanted to get that on there and I realised that I haven't put Wouldn't I Be Someone on As well which I'm kind of annoyed That I have, I've had to miss off But it could have been a non-album single yeah. With one of those other songs Yeah I'd have titled this A kick in the tin can <laughs> <laughs> It's worth hating the pants That brings us to the end of this episode on A Kick in the Head is Worth Eight in the Pants. Well, for our next episode, like the Bee Gees in Harry's Gate went back to 58, we are going to travel the way back to 1959. And even travel 20 miles to Blue Land because we've got some catch-up work to do. For the next few episodes, we're going to be going back through from the period in the Bee Gees' lives from 1959 through till 1966, and pick apart and go through all... All of the material that they did in Australia. And we mean all of it. All of it. In all of its its highs and of all of its lows. Yeah, and there are one or two lows. So I hope you stick with us for the journey because this was a time in the Bee Gees' lives that I was not familiar with at all. For me, the Bee Gees had always started at 1967, so this was just a whole can of worms to open up.
2: But there is some cracking material as well.
1: Oh yeah. I'm really excited for it. Also very apprehensive and nervous because I've got a lot of homework to do. Yeah, and he's gonna be practicing the stomp as well. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> we'll speak to you next time. Goodbye.
0: are gonna stop till the night is gone. Stop, stop, stop your
2: wing. Hey, oh. oh no, not that one.
0: I'd like to be the one to see. That's better. But I get claustrophobia Cause there's too many boys in your heart I'd like to know how far you'd go To use those lips of wine But I get claustrophobia Cause there's too many boys on your mind Oh, oh, one, two, three And now there's me you lead me on another one. I've got no room to breathe, so bye, bye you.
1: Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees Podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepsen. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees pod. Or if you'd like to get in touch. You can email us at wordsbegeespodcast at gmail.com
0: I get hostrophobia yeah. cause there's too many boys on your mind Oh oh one two three and now there's me you practice to deceive You leave me on another one I've got no room to breathe